0: Well, good morning and welcome, friends. It's good to see your faces. It's wet out there. Some of you didn't need to take a shower this morning. You just walked from your car into the building, and you were perfectly soaked and ready to go. I know I was pretty wet from my short walk in. Uh, Good morning to our online guests. We're glad that you're with us as well. Thanks for being here. Uh, Today, I just want to briefly mention today is October the 30th, and on the kind of church calendar, if you will, uh, today is a day we'd call Reformation Sunday. If you don't know your history, it was October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther posted the first blog post. He went up to the door, uh, the Wittenberg Cathedral, and hammered his 95 theses on there, and he kicked off something pretty incredible. Uh, And some of the things that he was doing, um, one of the some of the really important things that we celebrate today, um, was that he gave uh, this book, this book that we read, back to God's people. And he was translating it out of languages they didn't know into languages they did know. In fact, if you don't know this, uh, Luther's German Bible had a formative effect on the entire German language for the next 500 years. Because people could read the book in their own language, and that's how we got uh, the King James version of the Bible later, which formed a sense of poetry and elegance for the English world for a very long time. And so it gave the Bible to the people, and the people started reading their Bible, and they started to meet Jesus, and then things, then I mean, then the gates were up, and the pigs were loose, and everything was going crazy. So um, it was a pretty marvelous event in terms of what it meant, and we can celebrate the fact that we get to be a people who receive the book and read the book. And one of the hallmarks of that was also this doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, which comes, in fact, from 1 Peter, that you're a kingdom of priests, that we share in the ministry of Christ toward this world, that we have responsibilities, that it's not just holy priests in holy orders who get to wear uh, collars and hide behind screens, who do the real work of ministry, which happens in a place that you can't see or touch because you're not quite up to it. It's something we all participate in. In together. So it's a wonderful Sunday to remember those things. I had Paul sing a mighty fortress this morning because of it, because that's Luther. He wrote it. He knew how to write songs. He was weird. He could drink and write songs and do all sorts of things, uh, but he had some great stuff to give us, and so we received the benefit of those things today. That's the pre-sermon on Reformation Day. We'll move into 1 Peter now together at this point. So we're continuing our series on the book of 1 Peter. In this business of the exilic life, life as people in exile, people who are in the world but not of the world, people who have lives to live but this isn't quite our home. We're thinking about how to be authentically Christian in what is a hostile world. We're thinking about how to strengthen our Christian identity under the threat of a secular society. And in this respect, Our secular society today is not that much different from the secular society to which Peter was writing uh, or the semi-secular society to which he was writing back then. Today in chapter 3, we come to what I think is one of the most radical and challenging passages in the entire book. And it may not sound radical when I read it. It may just kind of wash over you and you're going to see some things that strike you as weird and that's okay. Uh, but I think that once I've talked to you about this, you're going to agree that Peter's word for us is today a powerful, potentially life-altering challenge. So uh, let me read the passage for you now. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Okay? Peter writes, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called... For the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, it may not sound that remarkable, but there are some pretty incredible things going on here. Peter is speaking, of course, to a group of suffering Christians, Christians who are estranged, they're ostracized because of their faith. Ostracized because their ethics set them at odds with the ongoing ethics of the world. Their commitment to what we call the Z-axis has made them not quite fit in with the two-dimensional world around them. They're at, e- at odds with the easy flow of the material world. I want to focus attention for a moment on this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where Peter says this, "...not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing." Now, uh, the world's way is to get back, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Someone cuts you off on the road, what do you do? You cut them off, right? Someone cheats you out of money, what do you do? You get it back. Or you cheat the next guy out of money, right? Someone is mean to you, you pass on the meanness to other people, right? you got to stand your ground. you got to fight your own. you got to make it happen. But this is not our way. This is the world's way, but it's not ours. The world gets even. You know what we do? We take the hit. That's what Peter calls us to do. And the world has an attitude of cursing. You know what we do? We bless. That's what we're called to. So what does the word bless mean? Literally, it means a good word, to speak a good word. Uh, if, we, if, you know, if you're going to a funeral sometime soon and someone gives a eulogy, a eulogy is a good word spoken of someone. It's a blessing. It's the same word in Greek here. Now, when the speaker is God... And remember that God sits over creation and speaks and things come into being. When God offers the blessing, there's effective power to make the blessing become true. Because it's the voice of God speaking. May you have a long life. When God says it, it's probably going to happen, right? May your kids grow up faithful in the Lord. If God says it, it's going to happen. May your harvest increase. If God says it, it's going to happen. Because God's words have power to become reality. Now, one of the mysteries of life is that God seems to have extended this effective power of blessing specifically to parents over their children. You laugh, but if you bless your kids, it has power to enrich their lives. If you curse your kids, they will be crippled for life. It's part of God's blessing that's passed on through us, the good word we're commanded to speak. So back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter is strangely explicit. For you were called for the very purpose. I've got the words in red. They might be hard to see. For the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. The funny thing is that in Greek, there's no word purpose there. It's just the word this. You were called to this. This moment, this place, this situation, this scenario, this What's going on here? What's Peter talking about? I think there's a couple things that he means. I think he has in mind the blessing that God spoke through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The beginning of early in the Bible, God calls Abraham out of Ur and he gives him a mission. He says, I want you to leave and go and follow me. And this is what it says in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is God speaking. Go forth from your country and from your relatives. In other words, become an exile. huh? And from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, which means increase, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now God had uniquely called Abraham out of other people for this purpose, and that is the purpose that God called him for was that through Abraham, God intended to bless everyone on earth. I'm drawing you out so that I can bless the world through you. Now, that blessing is going to come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And the word of God brings blessing to the world. And this is effectively the earliest bit of good news we read in the Bible. Then when we become God's people, the promise to Abraham becomes really a promise to us as well. We are co-inheritors. This is what we talked about two weeks ago with Peter. We're co-inheritors. We're God's chosen people. We've been called out of our current citizenships. We're a kingdom of priests, a nation of God's people, aligned with the kingdom of God. And part of that inheritance promise is that God wants to bless the world through us. The blessing of Abraham becomes our blessing. So what this means effectively is this. Every encounter with a non-Christian is an opportunity to bless them with God's blessing. Every opportunity you have with someone who's not in the faith is an opportunity to bless that person with the blessing of God. And you are God's anointed agent for blessing the world. Okay? So the next time uh, you're at the bank till and the person behind the counter is kind of grumpy, guess what? opportunity to bless, okay? I need to remember this one. Next time I'm in the drive-thru at McDonald's and I'm irritated with the person taking my order, it's an opportunity to bless, okay? And I get really irritated in the drive-thru, okay? Uh, The next time you're walking down the street or you're in your car and someone's honking at you, opportunity to bless. These are all opportunities. We have to see our world as an opportunity to be places where we bless the world, now, that's the first way to think about the word this, that this, you were called for this purpose because you're tied to the blessing of the world through Abraham and God's great purpose for creation. But it also might mean that Peter has something more specific in mind, that this specific scenario, in other words, God has called you to the scenario of suffering, to the scenario of being an outsider, of being alienated, of being ostracized, to this so that you could inherit a blessing as well. So the present pain, the present discomfort, far from being something to run from, is the very crisis point which God is currently manifesting his power to bless you. I want to spend the rest of my talk this morning explaining how this works. And to do this, rather than running directly through the passage, I'm going to to take it in some uh, out-disordered pieces, but I think it'll make sense. I'm going to talk about the meaning of baptism. I'm going to talk about being transformed into Christ's likeness. And then I'm going to come back to the question of suffering as a Christian, okay? Baptism, likeness to Christ, suffering as a Christian. That's the headlines. So let's talk about baptism first. At the close of the passage, Peter focuses his attention on baptism. And look with me again at verses 18 to 22, which might have been a bit obscure to you when we saw them, but keep in mind that baptism's in the background. For Christ died also for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went amid proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, there's some complex baptismal theology here. Don't panic. I think it all makes sense. Uh, But there may be two interpretive keys that will help us to draw these things together. So interpretive key number one is this. Christ's death and resurrection is a baptism. The death and resurrection of Jesus is itself a baptism. Now, when we think of baptism, we think of the ritual ends the earth, but they're brought through judgment safely to the other side. And baptism brings you through judgment into life on the other side some wonderful things happening when we celebrate the fe- uh, celebrate the ritual of baptism. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 10 verse 38, James and John ask for some privileges in the kingdom. James and John, they're called the sons of thunder. That's their nickname. They were troublemakers, right? You guys guys have brothers who are troublemakers? They're always crawling over the rafters doing weird things. You're looking at them going, oh, my word, those thunder boys, right? They're irritated. This is James and John hanging out with Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we want to be first in your kingdom. And Jesus says to them, "Uh, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, he's not talking about water baptism because he's already been baptized. He's looking forward to the fact that I'm going to die, be put into the earth, and come back to life again. Are you able to go through that death and resurrection, he says. His death and resurrection is a baptism. And, of course, he did it. He died. He was laid in a tomb, and he came back to the life. And according to 1 Peter 3.19, while he was in the grave, he hung out in the Jewish place of the dead, Sheol, on the Sabbath where he preached. He spent his Sabbath day in the synagogue like he did every other week. He rested. So it's a pretty wonderful little thing to keep in mind. So the death and resurrection of Jesus is a kind of baptism. That's the first interpretive key. Here's the second one. The second interpretive key is that baptism binds you to Jesus. It binds you to him, ties you, links you. It makes you uh, one with him. When we baptize today, we dunk people underwater. And at that baptism, uh, the dunking ties those people to the exodus. You are now God's rescued person. And it ties you to the flood. You have escaped judgment. And it ties you to creation. You are now a new creation in Christ. And, of course, most importantly, baptism ties you to the death and resurrection of King Jesus. Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses one through seven. There's really only, I could have read one verse in this, but it's so good I had to read all seven verses for you this morning. So here we go. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism isn't just dying, it's also coming alive. It's not just death, it's life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed. From sin, So when we go under the water and come out again, it's the symbolic, public, powerful connection between the descent of Christ into the grave and his resurrection to life. In baptism, you declare that the old you is dead and the new you is alive in Christ. Binds you to King Jesus. Paul says something quite similar in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh. Excuse me. I live by faith in the Son of God, Who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, our baptism binds us, links us, ties us to Jesus, not only to his death and resurrection, but also to his personality, his character, and his mission. And this brings us to the statements on likeness. Let's look at this next section about likeness. The second kind of big point this morning. A consequence of your baptism in Christ is that we are called to a life of imaging Christ, we're called to look like Christ. In short, Christian faith means becoming like Jesus. This is pretty obvious, but it's worth reflecting on and exploring in light of how Peter presents it to us. Christian faith means becoming like Jesus. Now, this is not a matter of a WWJD bracelet. Do you guys remember those bracelets when they happened and everybody and their cousin was wearing one? What would Jesus do, right? Every moment you're looking at your wrist, what would Jesus do, right? You're sitting at the Burger King trying to order off the menu, what would Jesus do, right? Right? He'd be no bacon, okay? So you've got you to hang off these things. Um, so you're looking at your ethics every moment, thinking about what would Jesus do in these moments. It's not a matter of looking him like him with like long, hippie hair and kind of flowy robes and hanging out barefoot with your friends. That's not what it means to be like Jesus. It means, it means that the foundation of your personality is being unmade, liquefied, reduced to basic parts, and then reconstituted, solidified, and remade into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus. It means being destroyed and remade. That's what likeness to Christ means. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, becoming like Christ means becoming like God. God. Which Peter has been on about in other passages, you shall be holy as I am holy, because you're to be like Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel. This is a radical thing in our lives. It's a matter of identity, of who you are. When we identify as Christian, it means something quite radical and quite central to our personhood. Uh, today, as you know, identity is quite fluid and flexible. You can identify as a fan of the Canucks, which might embarrass you, given how recent things are going. You can identify as a fan of Star Wars or as a Green Party politics. You can identify as an American, as a Canadian. You can even identify as a gender of your choice, or perhaps what you feel to be your innermost disposition. All of these are what we would call accidental. Okay. And what I mean by that is that you have a central, core idea of yourself. You have this inner person you think you understand. And to claim by identity, you are trying to show outwardly what you think you are inwardly. You're trying to bring some kind of harmony between the outward and inward parts of our lives. And often in our modern world, identity language is an attempt to fix The sense of discomfort we have between who we are inside and who we are outside. And yet to identify as Christian is something much, much more serious. It doesn't mean you are choosing a kind of outward form to reflect your inner life. It means that you have died with Christ. And that everything you hold central to being you has been laid on an altar and killed. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are being made into something new and strange and marvelous. I've talked about our mission and vision at NSA, and one of the points I highlighted was that we are for the redemption of the whole human person. We want to see people transformed, radically changed by the power of our resurrected Lord. But you need to know that the kind of change we're talking about will inevitably involve dying to yourself. You can't skip the grave. You can't skip the cross. There's no shortcuts to this. You've got to die. You've got to take the stuff you're holding on to so tightly that says, no, I'm really this, and that has to die. This is what's asked of us in Christian faith. And then you'll be remade according to the desires of our Lord. Therefore, identity as a Christian is a very dangerous thing. It means that if I identify as a Christian, I'm saying, I believe Christ is doing a work in me to transform me, that I'm in a pitched battle of surrender as he conquers more and more of my innermost self. Now, likeness to Christ doesn't mean conformity. Being like Christ doesn't mean that we become cookie cutters, little Christian cookie cutter. Sometimes we have this idea that all Christians are the same, and I think it's simply absurd. You know, it's evil that's conforming. Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Stalin, they all look alike. They just have differently shaped mustaches. Okay? Their evil's terrifying, but it's identical. It's evil that's boring. By contrast, it's very rare that the fully formed Christian looks anything like one another. Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, they don't look anything alike, do they? But they're both deeply formed into the image of Christ. If you've read uh, Corey Ten Boom, you know that she's this med, med, uh, wonderfully formed woman, and you can read her parallel to someone like Brother Andrew. They're nothing alike, but they're both formed by Christ. Stepping back into history, you could read Teresa of Avila and Martin Luther. They're nothing alike at all. <laughs> And Martin's got some rougher edges that need, <laughs> need, uh, need sorting out. But they've both been formed by King Jesus. So if you are holding on to some idea that all Christians are alike, let it go. In Christ alone is the infinite variety of full human personhood unlocked. If you try to be yourself, you're going to find you're just like everybody else. If you give up everything and follow Christ, you'll find you've never been more uniquely yourself. So let Jesus, and not culture, tell you who you are. Briefly, I want to highlight three aspects of this likeness to Christ. The first is likeness of character. Likeness of character. Christ was a perfect human. We're called to be perfect, be holy as God is holy. Uh, And one of the ways we see Christ's character is how he responds to his accusers. And this shows up in the passage we read last week with Bronwyn, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24, where Peter writes, you have been called for this purpose. Once again, there's no word purpose. It's just you've been called for this, this moment, this scenario, this business right now, Uh, so that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And here's the example. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Suffering reveals character, and Christ's suffering reveals his deepest character and shows us the pattern for ours, not only of things like goodness and kindness and mercy and justice, but also of patience and long-suffering and endurance and, of course, obedience to the Father. These are the things that reveal Christ's character. When you read the Gospels, when you go through and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things you're doing is studying the character of Jesus. This is the pattern. This is what I'm called to be like, and it's hard, and I need to be remade to do it, but that's what you're looking for. Second likeness is a likeness that comes with promises, a likeness with promises. Now, we've already highlighted one of these, the promise of Abraham, right? The promise of Abraham that through you I will bless all the nations, this becomes ours. And so when we become like Jesus, we get to inherit some of the same promises as Jesus, and that's explicitly the promises of Psalm 34 highlighted. These are the verses that are quoted in in, uh, chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, but what I want to do is take a moment and read through the psalm um, with you now, and just make some brief comments as I read this, because Peter is saying that when you are likened to Jesus, this psalm becomes true for you. That's part of what he's saying. So let me read it and just make a few brief comments. First verse, I will bless, I will speak well of, I will... Uh, I will use my words, uh the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. That's my confidence that I will put my deep trust of who I am in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. The people around me will be blessed because I am confident in the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. This is part of the promise that Peter wants you to hear, people who are feeling ostracized and alienated and outsiders in the world, that if you are trusting in the Lord like I'm asking you to, if you bless the Lord like you're supposed to, the angel of the Lord is protecting you. You can call on the promise of God's protection. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This is the conditions for inheriting. You want to inherit these promises? You have to have a disposition like Jesus. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is how to have God on your side, the God in your corner. The righteous cry the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the broken hearted to those who feel weak, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. When you have likeness to Jesus... You get the likeness of these promises. The promise to Abraham and the promise of Psalm 34 becomes yours as well. Third likeness is a likeness of mission. A likeness of mission. Jesus came to save sinners, to redeem the world, to overthrow temple tables, to feed the poor, heal the sick, preach good news. And because of our baptism and the likenesses we have, this Jesus bond means that under certain conditions, his ministry becomes ours. Under certain conditions, the ministry of Jesus becomes ours. And this gets us to the final section of today's message on suffering. Again, I've said it several times, Peter is writing to suffering Christians. And in many ways, this passage from 1 Peter 3 is the heart of his message to them. This is the nugget of what he wants them to hear, is that you can transform your suffering into something powerful. This is what he offers them. Now, often when we are confronted with suffering, we appeal to a variety of ultimately unhelpful responses, right? Uh, when you're encountering suffering, you try to explain it. Oh, this, this has happened because of these things, and this is going on, and, you know, you really shouldn't feel bad because you just, these are just the stuff that's going on in our world right now. Uh, but you've probably not seen the do- right doctor yet, or, you know, this is going on because of these things happening. You could just explain it. It minimizes it. Uh, you could justify it. You know, you really deserve this. You've been an idiot. Um, if you hadn't married him, like I told you not to, you wouldn't be in this trouble now, right? So we justify your pain by making excuses. This doesn't help the person either. Or we minimize it, right? Oh, I've been through much worse, right? You guys have friends who said that to you, right? Or you say, man, this is really hard, and then someone says to you, yeah, but imagine how hard it is for, for people in Iran right now. Huh? And then they just, well, I'm not in Iran right now, and I'm hurting, thanks, <laughs> right? And so there's this diminishing, and let's be honest, let's be honest about ourselves, is that when we confront suffering, we feel anxious. It's uncomfortable. And, and many times, our words are geared more to make us feel better than they are to actually care for the person who's suffering. We want to fix it because, because it feels like an unsolved problem. It's not helpful. So how does the Christian respond to suffering? And here we get First Peter um, 3. 13 through 18. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, That you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Now there's something uh, marvelous and strange in this passage, but I want to highlight it for you briefly, Um, get you there with me. So verse 14, we're going to highlight these words on the screen, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter is telling us that we need to make sure if we're suffering that it's for the right reasons. We are not, if you're suffering for the sake of your idiocy, you're suffering because you were a jerk in the public sphere. You're suffering because you've made a stink versus you're suffering because of your radical faithfulness to Jesus, okay? You need to be suffering for the right reasons. If you're not, so if you're suffering for doing wrong, there's no credit to you. Second verse, verse 15, um, while you're in this situation, he says, you need to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so there's a business of dedicating and rededicating and rededicating ourselves to the authority of King Jesus, to submitting to this process of being made like him. Verse 15 is the second half of this, is always be ready to make a defense, always be ready to give an answer. Uh, You need to know your stuff. If you're going to suffer this way, you need to be able to give a talk about why you're willing to undergo this. I've chosen this because it's part of my allegiance to King Jesus. And you'd be able to do this with gentleness and respect, right? Not not nose-twisting and trying to irritate people. And then verse 18, and here comes the great mystery. Somehow, in the economy of God's work in the world, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. And he's saying that if you suffer for righteous reasons, having sanctified your hearts, then you also might be the just suffering for the unjust that your suffering may have power to save your neighbor. This is holy, otherworldly stuff. But it's Peter's answer to the suffering of the Christians that he's writing to. If you do it right, you might save the world. Righteous persecution becomes an opportunity for the salvation of the law. unrighteous persecution will alienate the lost, right? Being a jerk for Jesus will push people away. There's a lot of conditions here. It's very important. But the more like Christ we are, the more our personal suffering, our community suffering is evangelistic. This has a direct impact on how we interpret suffering in one another. In short, Christians don't try to explain suffering or justify suffering or minimize suffering we always seek to transform it. We're seeking in these moments ways to see how God is working in it. And so it changes from something like, why is God doing this, to what is God doing in this? I just want to highlight our brother, Jay MacArthur, who just passed away a few weeks ago. Jay, I, I I don't think I heard a single word of complaint from Jay's mouth. He was one of the first people, Dave and I had a hospital visit in December when I arrived, right after Jay had gotten his diagnosis, one of the first things. And Jay, (laughs) sometimes maddeningly, pushed through to the end, right? He pushed, and he drove, and he lived, and he fought, and he was convinced there was stuff to do for the gospel. He didn't complain. And I think he's, in his own way, a wonderful model of someone who said, what's God doing in this? Not what's God doing to me. And I commend his example to you. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you are suffering today. I don't know what sadnesses or difficulties have arisen in your lives. Some of you are feeling alone and isolated because of your faith. You've lost friends, you feel left alone. Um, Some of you have been singled out at work or at school. Some of you have spouses who are irritated with the fact that you're here on Sunday morning and not with them. Some of you have coworkers, fellow students, or teachers who openly ridicule your Christian faith. Some of you have received medical diagnoses, and some of you care for family members who are mentally unwell. And I want to challenge each of you this morning not to explain suffering, not to justify it, nor to minimize it. But to come alongside one another and ask the harder but much more important question, which is this, where are you experiencing God? And you know what? You may come alongside someone who you know is suffering and you ask the question, say, "Uh, brother, where are you experiencing God? And your brother will say, I'm not. I have no idea where he is. And you know what? In that moment, you, fellow Christian brother or sister, are the opportunity to be God's presence for that person. It's an opportunity for ministry, not judgment. God in Christ is as close as your Christian brother or sister.